you're listening to the Comic Critics Podcast, a radio program and podcast produced at CHMR FM in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. It's the show where we consider, critique, and recommend comic books, graphic narratives, and other forms of comic-related popular culture. And welcome back to the Comics Critics Podcast with your hosts, Hans Rollman, that's me. And Leah Locke, that's me. And this is our In the Gutter episode where we pick some picks that we really enjoy and talk about them. That's right. So what have you got lined up there, Leah? Okay, so today I wanted to harken back to some of my very favorite superhero titles. So we don't talk a lot about superheroes on the show, so today I was like, no, we're going we're gonna to totally do that. So I'm going to talk about the Color series by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale and two books um, from that series. So I guess I'll start off with um, Daredevil Yellow. I'm going to talk about that one first. So just a, a little background. Have you read the color series, Hans? I have not. I'm, okay. I'm really in, I'm looking here at the lovely colored books, the blue and yellow you have. Yeah. So Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. So Jeff Loeb's a writer. Tim Sale's the artist. And together they have written my favorite superhero books. So they are my very favorite duo in the superhero publishing industry. And they write for both Marvel and DC. So they will write about all the biggies um, and the color series is um, it's a concept based on origin stories in a way as told through tremendous loss and heartbreak with a focus on the supporting characters and not the main characters that we're used to so today I'll talk about Daredevil Yellow and Spider-Man Blue but the stories not aren't really about either Daredevil or Spider-Man they're more about supporting characters in their lives and how these supporting characters help to create Daredevil and Spider-Man as we know them. Um, but what is most interesting about these, to me, is the art. So Tim Sale has this incredible artistic um, ability where his stuff reminds me very much of like 1950s noir. And then he has this brilliant um bits of color put in there and he does this uh, technique called wash to color so basically that's a semi-transparent layer of color over top of the art that he's created so in daredevil yellow for example a lot of the panels will be very very dark with um, beautiful just bits of yellow around and the yellow is meant to um highlight specific events and moments in Daredevil's life or, or Matt Murdock's life. So it basically this is a character's reflection on the loss that they've had and the extraordinary but totally ordinary characters that exist within these extraordinary worlds. So Daredevil Yellow is the first in the color series. So the color series has four books currently. There's Daredevil Yellow, um, Hulk Gray, Spider-Man Blue, and Captain America White. And Daredevil Yellow is the first one. It was published in 2001. And uh, Stan Lee said about this book, Tim's artwork is dramatic, high-voltage, cinematic style of a master cinematographer. And I don't think that I could say it any better because when I first read this, I thought, I am looking at a movie. I am reading a movie. And when the um, Daredevil TV show came out, I was looking for hints of what Tim Sale had done when I was watching that show because it is it is like watching um, 
it is like watching a movie and it, like every like all of the jumps that daredevil does all of his acrobatics you know they're in there the way that they should absolutely be in there for a movie it's just it's beautiful and it covers a huge time frame so it's the growth of the character as his origin story um right up to when he loses um this love of his life karen page who I hope I'm not spoiling anything for people who are only watching the TV show. But Karen Page um, was a love interest of Matt Murdock's. And uh, for a long time, she didn't know that he was Daredevil. She finds out. They still carry on. And then she is uh, murdered by Bullseye, one of his foes. And um, so this is thinking back on Karen. um, And he's writing letters to her. And he's trying to figure out his life based on what she brought to that and how she helped him to better understand his role and why he needed to be who he was. Um, so in the story, the whole thing is a story of loss because Matt loses his dad and he loses Karen and he can't keep strong connections throughout his life because he knows that if he does, he's going to lose those people too. So there's um, a hints of vibrant yellow in important moments. So for those people who don't know, we think of Daredevil in his typical red suit. Um, But he actually started with a yellow suit because his dad was a boxer and he wore this bright yellow boxing shorts and and the the robe that comes with boxers. So he actually crafted his first Daredevil suit out of his dad's yellow attire. And so it starts with that. And then at one point, Karen says, you know, I thought you were a devil, like should you be yellow or whatever and that's when he's like oh well maybe maybe I should change into red so the daredevil that we know you know is conceived of for Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale by this thing that Karen had said and what I find really interesting about yellow is that so we see yellow and we think yellow is happy it's vibrant it's this color of the sun and things like that but actually if you look at the history of yellow yellow is actually quite a menacing color it's often attributed to bad guys and villains and Mm. things like this so it's really interesting that his world would be um, tainted I'll say by the color yellow and all of the 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 loss and the heartache and the hurt in his life um, the color yellow would be so vibrant and also Karen's hair She's got mm. blonde, golden hair. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I just love this book. And I thought it was a really interesting lens to the story of a character that you're, you're, you're just so well accustomed to in the world of superheroes, you know. And I've read different origin stories for Daredevil. And this, I think, because it's not necessarily an origin story, but it does encapsulate many years of his life. Um, but because it, the lens is on this supporting character and the supporting character who doesn't always get, um, you know, the juicy meat of the story, but he wouldn't be who he was if she hadn't existed. And I just, I really love that. Wow. And did the authors, um, do they put that kind of conscious thinking into when they pick what color to associate with which superhero? Okay. Absolutely. And each each part of the color series is about some sort of great loss. So, um for Hulk, he's thinking about his marriage to Betty, and in Captain America, he's thinking about his relationship to Bucky, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be romantic, right? Mm-hmm. And then we'll get into Spider-Man in a minute, but I like it's it really humanizes these larger-than-life, more-than-human characters that we expect to be so extraordinary, and yet they need these very ordinary relationships in order to to be these big characters that we need them to be mm-hmm. I, I i love it i love it i, I just love jeff Loeb and tim sale so much oh, that's fascinating wow 
Well, my pick for this week is not a superhero uh, related, but I, I guess there is a connection there in terms of the focus on the almost the people behind the scenes, you know, who make things happen. And so the the book that I picked is it's a Japanese manga by Kazuto Tatsuta titled Ichi F, uh, Worker's Graphic Memoir of the Fukushima Nuclear Power Plant. So many of us are familiar with the massive earthquake and tsunami that uh, happened in northern Japan in on March 11th, 2011, and then the ensuing nuclear meltdown that happened at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Uh, what hasn't been as thoroughly chronicled in English language media, I don't think, uh, since then is the massive cleanup effort that's been ongoing since the, the meltdown. And that is the subject of Tetsuta's uh, manga. Uh, it's this, it's a massive manga, over 500 pages. And it's a really remarkable style. I, I struggled when I first read this with how to describe it. And I, I once referred to it as a proletarian manga because it's he doesn't really engage with the politics of pro-nuclear power or anti-nuclear power, uh, which is what where a lot of that discussion of the meltdown usually goes. Instead, he's interested in presenting a detailed explanation of what it's like to work on a nuclear meltdown cleanup crew. And it's this very kind of diagnostic, procedural, step-by-step um, chronicle of his life on one of these cleanup crews. So the story starts as many manga uh, stories seem to start with uh, the author as an unemployed aspiring manga artist. Uh, you know, he wants to be a manga artist, loves doing art, can't get published, can't get a job, <laughs> doesn't know really what to do. So he, he's he been applying for work at a temp agency. This is all true. This is his, his actual backstory, so far as we know anyway. So he applies for work at a temp agency and says he's willing to work uh, at nuclear at the cleanup, doing nuclear cleanup work, uh, which makes him eligible to a wider range of jobs that not all workers are willing to, you know, work in that kind of a dangerous environment. And so he eventually uh, gets a gig on one of these cleanup crews. Now, one of the fascinating things about the cleanup effort, and this is something I never really wrapped my head around until I read this, was uh, how complex the the new the cleanup operation is. Japan's nuclear industry is privatized in many ways. And so it, that involves a lot of contracting out. So when the meltdown happened, you know, the power company hired these subcontractors who hire other subcontractors who hire other subcontractors. So you get this totally bewildering maze of companies working, each of them doing little tiny portions of the cleanup crew of the cleanup operation. How they keep track of all this is beyond me. Tatsuta does an amazing job analyzing this. So he has these elaborate graphics and charts, and it, it's absolutely stunning how he manages to explain uh, it's almost like a textbook in in modern corporate economics you know how the contracting arrangements work um, it's absolutely fascinating and there's also this element where once he's there he realizes that you know he's hired for this one subcontractor then you get there and you realize that some companies pay better than others some of the working conditions are better than others and so you know sometimes you some of the workers want to jump to a different company but that's highly frowned upon but it it does happen and so uh sometimes employees will secretly try to negotiate their way into a different company and it's it's almost like a spy movie it involves you know meeting in secret and passing notes and trying to negotiate your way onto a different subcontractor if you're caught before you nail down a contract you know you'll be blacklisted by everyone so it's this amazing intrigue that goes on by workers who are you know long-term nuclear cleanup workers trying to negotiate their way to a better job it's absolutely fascinating 
He also goes into a lot of depth explaining the nature of his work. Like he'll start chapters explaining all the gear he puts on, really conveys what it's like to, you know, he'll spend, they'll spend hours putting on equipment, checking their safety gear, getting to the site. They might only do a few minutes of actual cleanup work, but so much is involved in, in, the, in the safety equipment and the, you know, the getting into the areas that have been flooded with radiation and so forth. It's really amazing. Highly detailed, could almost be a textbook, but it's, uh, it's, 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 he carries the narrative in a, in a manga style. There's a lot of debate, of course, about whether you know, nuclear po- power is worth the risk. And Tetsuta's take, and this is where I, I tended to be a little bit critical of him, he, he seems to lean on to the side of nuclear power is fine and safe. And he certainly makes a good case. Uh, he has a lot of trust in the science and in, in the equipment. You know, he's, he, he believes in, 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 in the industry. And that raised some kind of question marks in my mind. Okay, you know, how, how separate is he? How, how objective an observer is he uh, from the industry itself? Because in some ways, it almost seems to be very much an apologetic for the industry. Uh, supposedly, you know, he claims that he was, is unaffiliated and he actually keeps his actual identity quite secret because he, he goes back and forth. He considers himself almost like a sociologist doing field work. So he'll get hired back in on some of these temp agencies and go in to do subsequent work and then go in and out. So, uh, but still, the way he's very much in favor of nuclear power kind of makes me a little bit suspicious. But what he does expose in a really fascinating way is, is the terrible working conditions of these temp workers. When he was first hired, he, he was told he had a contract. He went up. Uh, and then they find that they're crammed, you know, 12 workers into a small one or two bedroom apartment up there. Sometimes the subcontractor doesn't actually have the contract and the subcontractor is still bidding for a contract. So these employees are kind of crammed in these small apartments. They're not being paid. Their their bill for their rental arrangements is is piling up while there's while their employer is trying to get a contract and then their employer gets a contract so they start working and they're retroactively billed for the time they were up there waiting for their employer to get a contract it's absolutely horrendous and he really conveys how just what a mess this arrangement of subcontractors and 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 contracting arrangements is now he's he takes this almost macho attitude he's like oh we're hard workers we take pride in our work so what that's that's the problem of the 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 employers and the bureaucrats and I'm again a bit critical about him on that front you know mm. I I think be more concerned about working conditions and trying to improve them if I were in that kind of a situation but it's a really fascinating book you know and if only in the sheer depth in which he goes into uh, what it's like to actually work in the heart of these meltdown uh, nuclear plants. The book looks like it's mostly in black and white, but mm-hmm. there's splashes of color. What is the what is the um yeah 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 he he does have like the the intro of each of the kind of issues so this started oh, okay. yeah this uh began he began publishing these in 2014 in japan mm-hmm. and um it was uh the big collected edition was put out in 2017 in english and so the the first few pages of each issue are in color but yeah it's it's a it's a fascinating uh fascinating read yeah, it's beautiful yeah sometimes it's almost information overload um uh, <laughs> because there is just so much information. I, I don't know how he managed to make detailed enough notes to you know do this all after the fact because yeah. he wrote up the manga in between his periods of work uh, up at the plant. So it's very That's, interesting. Um, it's incredible. Okay, um, I will talk about my last pick, which is part of this color series that we were talking about before between Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale and the 
um, wash to color technique art that uh, Sale is doing here. And this is my personal favorite of the color series. It's Spider-Man Blue, which was released in 2011. And I love Spider-Man, but I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan. Um, although I do love Spider-Man. Um, but I, I am Team Gwen Stacy. So if we, whatever you know about Spider-Man, oftentimes you know about his girlfriend or current wife, MJ, um, who is the red-headed bombshell that's often strategically posed in things in um, different Spider-Man comics, and it looks really ridiculous, and no woman could possibly sit like that. But um, anyways, I, don't, I have never liked the character of MJ. She doesn't do anything for me. Um, and so Spider-Man Blue is um, about Peter Parker, who finds himself in his attic on Valentine's Day, um, years you know after being Spider-Man, and he is currently married to MJ. And he is recording thoughts to Gwen Stacy, who was um, a, the great love of his life, who was killed tragically by the Green Goblin. And well was she either the Green Goblin or even Spider-Man himself because when he went to save her and he shot the webs at her her neck snapped so in an attempt to save her she actually died um, and so she was this great love and I always really liked Gwen Stacy she was smart she was fiery she was kind she was just so full of goodness but she's a very academic person at the same time and she, to me she she had more to offer me than than MJ did and so the story is about basically when he met MJ and uh, he was still in love with with Gwen and all of these things and it's looking back at how much Gwen affected both of their lives and basically you know comes to terms with saying you know Mary Jane couldn't have been a good partner or she couldn't have grown up if it hadn't been for Gwen Stacy and all of these things so it's it's a typical boy meets girl story you know you've got Gwen the good girl and MJ the party girl and they I don't know if you've read Spider-Man but in the uh, original Spider-Man when he first meets Gwen Stacy or sorry MJ uh, she's uh, she's leaning against his doorframe and she says to him you just hit the jackpot and that is actually what happened in the original story and so they actually use that in this one too Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb they they hearken back to that and they used it and the art that Tim Sale does is very heavily inspired by John Romita Sr.'s art and it's sort of a retelling of his stories but with a greater focus on how the secondary characters affect Peter Parker's decision and, and his life. So he keeps, Peter Parker keeps a tape recorder diary and, uh, and he talks to, to Gwen, even though she's been dead for, for many years. And he recounts the story from his point of view, starting with um, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, and, and it goes up. And in the end, um, he's married to MJ and but he thinks back to Gwen Stacy all the time. And if he hadn't known her and had relationship with her, he just never would have been who he was. And neither would she and neither would any of the other secondary characters, even um, Harry Osborn and things like this. So it's a it's a really beautiful look at how people can affect you. And it's called Spider-Man Blue because the tone of the book is filled with sadness so spider-man despite or peter parker despite um where he's come in his life and all the success that he may have had he still carries this tremendous sadness and uh and it's really really a beautiful story 
I, when I first read it, it actually, I don't cry very often when I read things, but it actually brought tears to my eyes. I highly recommend anything that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale do. Um, they are my favorite creative team for superhero comics. And uh, very, very touching. It's a whole new way of looking at superheroes. But there's still action for those people who are only going to read it for the action. The action is still there, but it's not the focal point hmm. of the stories. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, I, lo- I'm not, I don't read a lot of superhero comics, but I love when you get a phenomenon where you can develop, you know, explore the, the spinoffs in, in that way. And it's such a coherent universe yeah. that, you know, looking at the secondary characters or the backstories produces its own body of literature in its own right. It does. And right now, I, superhero stories are going through this really strange phase where as somebody who does read a lot of superhero and who used to have pull lists and get the single issues of a number of stories, you know, and follow, like, it's just too hard now. It's too hard. There's too many crossovers. There's just too much. They keep retconning. They keep restarting things. It's it's exhausting as a reader to keep up with it, right? So now I find that I prefer the standalone stories. I said prefer those things that can be tied up in, you know, one to six issues and then and then you're good. Um, so that's where I find myself reading superhero things now. And this is why I think I love Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale so much because they do these special projects. So they're not writing, you know, the amazing spider-man as it's currently running for example so i i do i i just i really love it and it's a really great opportunity to really get into a character that you're you always think you're really familiar with and yet they surprise you well some great reads there that's right all right and next week uh or in in a couple weeks our next episode uh we'll be back with our book club format We'll be uh, looking at... We'll be looking at We Stand on Guard by Brian K. Vaughn. Emily will be back to join us, and we'll have a great discussion. I love that book, Hans. I can't wait to talk about it. Me too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, especially as we see the the current state of American-Canadian relations. <sighs> yes. And, yeah, lots of fuel for, for discussion. Yes. Okay, so we'll see you then. Until then, Happy keep reading. reading. <laughs> You've been listening to The Comic Critics, a radio program and podcast produced at CHMR-FM in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. We'll be back in about two weeks with more comic-related popular culture.